0: Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. The program is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group, and the views and opinions expressed on the program are those of the speakers and not the station. This week's episode includes Harriet Seiler representing our group at the Kentucky Alliance's New Year's Eve virtual get together. Then we'll hear Kay Tillo, our chairperson, talk with David Swanson, host of Talk World Radio out of Charlottesville, and it and uh, that program is also part of Pacifica's network. Then we'll hear Dr. Ed Weisbart. Dr. Weisbart is chairperson of the Missouri chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. Healthcare,
1: long-standing, uh, uh, wonderful org- organization. Been doing great work all along. Had a couple great events, more than a couple. But their summer event was that from. Um, uh, on July 24th and their winter event was on December the 11th. And so Harriet Seiler, are you here to speak on those two events and tell us about Kentucky for single-payer health care?
2: Um, Kay, thank you very much for having me. And of course, you can see in the picture, there are some other people that should have been here. Um, uh, well, I'm not the Grinch, but um, you know, Dr. Garrett Adams and Kay Tillow, uh, the Reverend Ron Robinson, we can see, and um, that correct? And, yeah, uh, and oh, I always get it wrong, I'm sorry. And then um, we had uh, several people from unions as well. Um, and that was the event on December the 11th. And uh, mainly uh, our big concern right now, of course, we want everybody to have health care. And I've been in Kentucky since 1975, but you can hear my Canadian accent. I'm an American citizen, but I know that single payer Medicare for all works. And we want everyone in the United States to have health care. And although we now focus on the term Medicare for all, we're not just talking about Medicare for seniors we want everyone covered from birth until death and covered for all necessary medical uh treatment um so let's see the one thing we're worried about right now we did of course have all those marketing promotions from the private insurers trying to sell medicare advantage plans you know they had uh, Joe Namath and um, other, uh, you know, other stars, et cetera, trying to promote Medicare Advantage, but the insurers profit from Medicare Advantage. And so what we want is, and the other thing is, we're afraid that even our own government right now is trying to privatize Medicare and bring uh, Wall Street investors into medicare and what we say now is don't privatize medicare supersize it meaning give us medicare with dental and vision and long-term nursing home care etc we have got to fight for this and we have got to stop the profiteers who are trying you know i mean they are just making mega profits And I get very (laughs) intense and excited about that. They should not be profiting from sickness from our, and also they often deny and delay care. You know, they say, oh, you've got to have approval. And every time they deny you care, they profit. So um, what we want you to do now is to call Secretary Becerra, who is the uh, secretary of health and human services and tell him to stop this uh, move towards privatizing Medicare. And um, well, I I don't wanna go into the weeds, but they're trying to put private investors and they call it direct contracting entities into Medicare and um, They could change traditional Medicare and make it more like an advantage plan and that would be fine if they gave you dental and vision, but not if they're trying to raise the cost and the taxpayer is paying a lot of those costs, I mean most of those costs, so. um, I don't I get too excited and Kay, you need probably to stop me, but uh, we want everyone to call the Secretary of Health and Human Services, that's, um, you know, the national office, and I'm sorry to say part of the Biden administration, and tell them we don't want Wall Street running our Medicare.
1: Well, thank you, Harriet, that's exactly exactly right. So thank you, and thank you, Chuckians, for single-payer health care.
2: Well, and, oh, I want to thank you for honoring our organization because, um, the alliance has been ever since you know and braden was still here and odiwali Troutman came to speak at the uh, braden center and uh spoke about that what we need is single-payer health care so we thank the alliance for their support as well thank you
3: the sneaky if not sleazy bipartisan privatization of medicare our guest, Kay Tillow, is Chair of Kentuckians for Single-Payer Health Care and Coordinator of Unions for Single-Payer Healthcare. She is a retired union organizer who has worked for decades with nurses and other hospital workers. Kay Tillow, welcome to Talk World Radio. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for what you're doing, uh, working for single-payer health care. I thought that Medicare was simply and by definition public and that even an easy way to get fully public health coverage would simply be to expand Medicare. So what does it mean to privatize Medicare?
4: Well, I wish what you said were true, but... We have for a long time had a privatization process going on with Medicare. And uh, a part of that is the Medicare Advantage programs that really disadvantage us, but they are privatized for-profit programs that are sold to the public. And of course they have been allowed by legislation and regulation so that they're really ripping us off and uh, uh, giving less care and doing denials, etc. And they now have about 42% of the Medicare beneficiaries. But in addition to that, there is something called direct contracting entities. And that's the newer privatization scheme, which looks at those that have chosen traditional Medicare, public uh, Medicare, and it's handing those over to Wall Street, uh, venture capitalists, hedge funds, insurance industry, etc., in a model plan that's being run out of something called the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and it's under the, you know, administration of Medicare and it is doing model programs where it is giving to 53 different for-profit entities the chance to make money off of Medicare. And it's underway now. It was, um, it was, well, I first learned about it when Trudy Lieberman wrote a piece, I think in December of 2020. And uh, she warned, she said, there's an under-the-radar program that seeks to privatize all of Medicare. And it puts uh, seniors, the beneficiaries, into these plans without their consent. In other words, they don't have to worry about getting Joe Namath out there to sell the plans. They're simply auto-enrolling or what they, the word they use is aligning. They are aligning you into one of these plans, which means they then pay the direct contracting entity a capitated sum uh, for your care. And they have, by that process, reversed the incentive to give you care. In other words, If if you, under traditional Medicare, if you use a hospital or see a physician or physical therapist, there is a fee for service. There's a payment from Medicare for that particular thing. And if there is more care, more is paid. Well, this has reversed that incentive. Under the direct contracting, there's a capitated payment so that they get to keep more of the money if they give less care. And that's what is so damaging to us. And uh, it's through the capitation, and also through something called upcoding, that they uh, uh, they make people seem sicker than they are, in order to increase the money. So, for instance, uh, a direct contractor could be paid $4,000 a year for a Medicare uh, beneficiary. But if they say the person has this and that and is morbidly obese and has congestive heart failure and tick off another number of things, they can get the rate up to 38000 a year. So it's a very lucrative thing. Uh, Wall Street is happy as can be over the possibilities. And what is so tragic is that no one knows about it. The seniors don't know about it. Congress isn't saying anything or doing anything about it. It's a completely under-the-radar program that will indeed privatize Medicare within a few years. It's now operating in 38 states and uh, there are 53 direct contracting entities. One of them is our very own Humana here in Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, they're happy to get into this business. They make most of their money now, they make by public money gets paid to them and then they're supposed to, you know, they do Medicare Advantage as well, but they now have a direct contracting entity.
3: And so, Kay Tillo, if you are a recipient or a beneficiary of Medicare and you've either chosen the disadvantage of Medicare Advantage or you've been put, you know, unbeknownst to you, you've been stuck into this new privatization program, uh, and you discover it and you notice that you're not getting the treatment that you should be getting, that, that there's a new, uh, effort to deny you, uh, medical care what can, can you can you proactively opt back in to the public Medicare do you have that choice if you know enough and and act on it?
4: Well I've been reading about this and trying to learn and try asking that question and trying to understand it appears to me that you are automatically enrolled in it you are supposed to be informed about it. In other words, you're supposed to get an annual letter that says, you know, you're you're in this entity. But I don't think there's a way to get out of it other than to leave your physician because the physician practice has become a part of a direct contracting entity. And as long as you're with a physician who is in one of those, that's the payment that will be made, and you are in it without your uh, without your consent, which is one of the terrible things for those who always want choice, choice, you know.
3: Yeah. So you have to find a physician who's made a public commitment to stick with public Medicare and switch to that physician?
4: Well, I, I think that's the answer. You know, this is all very complex and unclear. And I, I've been listening, reading their white papers and listening to uh, Liz Fowler and uh, her uh, others in the Innovation Center and it's difficult to ascertain all of the answers. And I asked that question in one of, they had a webinar, but they didn't choose me to be one of the people who got to ask a question. Uh, they were all, all of the people that got to speak were direct contracting entities. So, uh, my question was, uh, if I don't choose to be, uh, a beneficiary included in a direct contracting entity. Can I get out? And if so, how? They didn't answer it. So I'm not certain of the answer, but I believe because they, you can be enrolled either through voluntarily signing up to be in one of these, or you can be enrolled through I have to think of the term um, assignment, assignment by uh, by how the billing is done. In other words, if you go to a doctor who is a part of a practice that's a part of this, you get assigned into that direct contracting entity. And you know, yeah. one of our problems is that so many physician practices in other parts of our healthcare system are being bought up by private equity. So it's no longer, you know, the little physician (laughs) office down the street. There's an entity that uh, controls that physician practice. And uh, so some of the direct contracting entities are like, for instance, Village MD. Village MD is one of the,
3: Not what it sounds like, yeah.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Not your little country doctor. (laughs) But, you know, that's a direct contracting entity. And, uh, you know, well, they say we're fortunate. There was a, a, right now, the program that they're modeling that's underway is called Global and Professional Direct Contracting. There was another one that they had underway, which was geographic direct contracting. (laughs) And that one put all of the people in a city into a DCE, city by city. And they had 15 cities and they weren't little ones. Wasn't Paducah, Kentucky, it was Atlanta and Houston and Philadelphia and Los Angeles and All of the people who were Medicare beneficiaries in that city were going to be aligned (laughs) into a direct contracting entity. Now, that one has been put on hold, uh, let's see, for review, I think. So it didn't go forward, but I don't know that it went backward. (laughs) I don't know. When, you know, these, these people talk in a strange language that's very difficult. Yes, indeed. For mere mortals to understand
3: <laughs> i think kate Tillo. i think this should be an important lesson for the world at the big democracy summit uh make everything too complicated and obscure for anyone to comprehend don't answer anyone's questions and you'll be better able to rip them off you, you know important democracy lesson uh tell tell us a little bit about the center for medicare and medicaid innovation and who and what it is and where it came from, it came from Obamacare, right?
4: It came from the Affordable Care Act, which was the indeed the Healthcare Reform Act that was passed in 2010. And it was set up under that. I think, uh, you know, if we go back to that time, at the time I was active in single payer health care, that fight that still continues, which is really the key fight. I mean, that's where we as a nation have to go in order to cover our people. And um, at the time, uh, you'll remember that Max Baucus was the head of the Senate Finance Committee. And uh, uh, he's the one who had the doctors and nurses and other people arrested because they suggested that the hearings be open to people who advocated for single-payer health care.
3: So, um, they have even a single person speak who wasn't in favor of, <laughs> of the opposite, right? Yeah. No,
4: well, I think eventually they did, but you know they never listened. And the person who, uh, who, who wrote the Affordable Care Act, I mean, everyone says that, is Elizabeth Fowler. And uh, this Liz Fowler is really an operative for the insurance industry. She was a vice president of uh, WellPoint, which I think became Anthem. And she wrote the bill. Everyone says Liz Fowler wrote the bill. You know, (laughs) she worked with Max Baucus in the Senate Finance Committee. Well, after Liz Fowler left there, I think she went to work for Johnson & Johnson, another... (laughs) one of the <coughs> medical uh, profiteers. She was with the Commonwealth Fund for a time. Well, guess what? She's been appointed by Biden to be the director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, which is the agency which, within Medicare that is doing these experiments. And um, I think she's up to the same thing <laughs> as before, <laughs> which is clearing the path for profit-making in healthcare. And it really is, it's a terrible thing that there seems to be no challenge from, from academics, from, you know, only from a few people, Physicians for National Health Program, a few others, to what they say they're doing. They say that they are going to cut costs so that, because we spend too much, which we spend double per capita, what other industrialized nations spend on health care, so they say they're going to cut it. But their scheme of how to cut it is they're going to change to something called value-based care. Instead of paying fee for service, they're supposedly going to determine what the value is and pay on that basis. The reality is (laughs) what they are doing, they wanna do away with fee for service and they want to turn over all of healthcare to something that has risk for the physician practice. They want to put the profit motive into all of Medicare because they think that's the way, you see, they'll cut the costs because there will now be a profit motive to cut back on the care. So that's the plan that's underway and it's terrible.
3: Well, it may cut costs. It'll also cut health. Uh, and and I remember some of my friends who were arrested in that hearing. Uh, people like Margaret Flowers were, were saying then they're going to write this bill so that it has means to exploit it. For, for further privatization. And now you have the same person in charge of writing the bill in charge of exploiting what she wrote. Uh, I mean, is there any, do you, do you get to come back and say we were right? Is there any, you know, do you now get to testify in a hearing because you were right and all the people who got to testify were wrong? Is there any sort of, <laughs> is that built into the system anywhere?
4: Well, you know, we've got to get an upsurge in um uh people taking this on. And of course, you know, we're talking about this because we do believe that when, uh, when our people know uh, that Medicare is under attack and being destroyed, that there will be an outcry, an uprising that perhaps can have the power to stop this. So we're working on it. Margaret yeah. was right, you know, she was right about what was happening. And, um we are losing medicare if we don't speak out but this particular situation we don't have you know the new york times didn't cover the washington post didn't cover it's nowhere it's nobody knows about it
3: and and some people yourself and i think there were 1500 doctors have put out a statement of some kind right
4: right uh, physicians for a national health program and a group called National Single Payer, and some others have been working on it for some time. There is a little bit of activity. There were four congresspersons who wrote a letter to uh, Xavier Becerra, the head of Health and Human Services. And they raised the things I'm raising, you know, how can people be put into plans without their consent? And what is to keep people from being exploited as and draining the trust fund like Medicare Advantage is doing by being overpaid by billions? And uh, they, the last, the the four uh, congresspersons were Katie Porter and Mac uh, Pocan, Pascrell of New Jersey, and Doggett of Texas. And the last I heard, they had not received a response from Becerra, which means they don't think they have to be responsible to the Congress. And indeed, one of the things, the crucial fact about this Innovation Center is that if they determine that the plan, the model they tried is good, they can implement it for all of Medicare without congressional approval.
3: So. You know, I remember certain, certain unions, including the government workers unions like Me coming around the country with a big bus and doing little stage rallies about health care, but you were forbidden to have any poster that said single payer because what the Democrats wanted you to demand of the Democrats, sort of inverting the process, was a public option uh and, and so you were allowed to get we love the public option you were supposed to you know say this as instructed by the people you're trying to to lobby as your so-called representatives and then of course what it, they seem to have put in there instead of any public option is a private option a way to take the bit that's public and give people the option or even not the option to put them into something private i, I mean it 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 seems this inversion of democracy uh, didn't work out very well.
4: Um, Well, it worked out for some, (laughs) you know, some some are making big money on it. But, you know, that really is the problem. It's the profit in healthcare that makes it cost so much. And uh, the administrative costs are geared to the mechanisms that make it profitable. You know, they have utilization review. You know, you don't want anybody to get too much care. And um, all of the uh, pre-authorization, you know, the, the barriers to care are in there. They are insurance company mechanisms because they see it as the cost is so high because people are overusing care. And that's not accurate.
3: Yeah, overusing—they're too healthy. What? What is anything happening in Congress? These four members that wrote a letter—I mean, I can write a letter. Is anybody in Congress attempting to legislate in any way? And and what should people be uh, asking of them?
4: Well, I think that people should ask uh, uh, their ask Basera uh, to end the direct contracting entities, and they should ask their congressperson. To uh, demand that there be a a, a halt to these, and to to get in and oversee it, and to say, Medicare, we have to stop the direct contracting entities. We also need to stop the Medicare Advantage. You know, in in 2020, there were 403 members of Congress who signed onto a letter organized by the America's Health Insurance Plans to advocate for Medicare Advantage. We love Medicare Advantage. We support Medicare Advantage. And if you think about it, there are only 535 of them. So yeah. <laughs> they had, you know, most of them on. And even some of those who are progressive, some of them who signed on to... You know, single payer legislation. So we have a big job to do. They have to break these ties with the insurance industry and start siding with the the people of this country who need care because the barriers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger.
3: Yeah, we've, we've got a few minutes left, uh, speaking with Kay Tillow, who is chair of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare and coordinator of Unions for Single Payer Healthcare. You're planning a demonstration of some sort in Louisville, Kentucky on December 11th. What are you planning and how can people in other parts of the United States do something similar?
4: Well, come to Louisville if you'd like to go uh, with us. But uh, Humana, which has a big, marble, very expensive building here uh, in downtown Louisville, and they are one of the direct contracting entities. They're running programs in Texas and Florida and Washington. And so we intend to go to their doorstep and with a... uh, poem about how the Grinch stole Medicare. And uh, we intend to uh, speak that and sing that and to have a program of protest uh, on humanist doorstep, asking them to cease and desist and also asking our congresspeople to take a stand and fight with us to preserve Medicare and to end the DCE. So it's at 11 o'clock, and we'll be on the street with some songs and poems, and we have a, a Grinch, you know, a full in full costume, we will have a Grinch, and uh, we'll be at Humanity's Doorstep. We've been there before. Uh, they know us because they really are uh, one of the big guys that are, is making big money off of public health care funds.
3: Okay, Tilla, we have a, about two minutes left. You wouldn't be willing and able to read that poem to us, would you?
4: Oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to find <laughs> I don't think oh, I'm yeah.
3: going to find
4: it. I don't have it in front well, of
3: if me. you. If you share it with me, we will share it with people uh, at TalkWorldRadio.org. Um, but
4: okay, I will send you the poem, so that it's about DCEs and and Medicare being stolen and uh, uh, the fight to stop uh, this plan.
3: And and what do you what do you recommend to people who can't make it to to Louisville? I know it's it's right down Interstate sixty four from here in Charlottesville, but uh, I don't know if I'll be able to make it. Uh, what what can people do where they are?
4: Well, I don't know. I've heard some rumor that there might be some demonstration around why how the Grinch stole Medicare in New York. I'm not certain if that's going to happen, but people could check that out and. Uh, you know, do another demonstration about the DCE. Go to see your congressperson. Uh, go to their doorstep and ask that they join us in protecting Medicare. And uh, I think that we should be able to get the public to rise up and demand an end to this. I think we can do that.
3: There's Usually, every Congress, there are bills in both houses to actually create single-payer uh health coverage in the United States. Uh, How how are those doing this Congress in comparison to the last dozen or so Congresses?
4: Well, there's no bill at all in the Senate. Uh, No Medicare for all, no single payer. There is one in the House um, with I think the last I saw it had 117 co-sponsors. It is not as good as the bill we had uh, under Conyers, which was HR 676, which uh, converted the for-profit hospitals. We need to do that. They give worse care and it's lower quality, higher cost. But it is a single payer bill and it's uh, uh, sponsored by Congresswoman Jaya Powell, but she hasn't been pushing it. Nobody's been pushing on it, you know. There needs to be a a higher standard set. When the rest of the industrialized world can have universal care, we can't settle for a standard that says, well, you know, just maybe give us a hearing aid or something and we'll be okay.
3: Very well said. Appreciate everything you're doing. Kay Tillo is Chair of Kentuckians for Single-Payer Health Care and Coordinator of Unions for Single-Payer Health Care. Kay, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk
5: World Radio.
4: So happy to be with you. Thank you for caring.
5: I'm John Schumann with Medical Monday. Healthcare costs continue to be what's called a kitchen table issue. Even if we have health insurance, be it through our employer or purchased on an exchange via the Affordable Care Act, it seems like year after year more comes out of our pocket. Higher co pays for visits and medicines, higher deductibles we have to overcome just to get our insurance to do its job. Some economists say that healthcare costs, which in total are about $3 trillion in annual goods and services in the United States, will soon be one fifth of our GDP. We have other needs. Surely we can spend less on health care and still do well. Isn't that the promise of technology? What's a logical way we can solve the uninsured problem and not break the economy? My guest today, Dr. Ed Weisbart, has a simple idea. Weisbart is a family physician and former chief medical officer at the large pharmacy benefit manager called Express Scripts. now retired. He currently is the chair of the Missouri chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program an advocacy group that espouses government-financed single-payer health care, which he says is now favored by 60% of doctors and the majority of the public. So what's the rub? Well, as you'll hear, there's a staunch and well-financed opposition to single-payer health care, some of which you may remember from the political drama over the Affordable Care Act from 2009 to 2012 and beyond. Ed Weisbart, chair of the Missouri chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program, is my guest today on Studio Tulsa Medical Monday. Ed Weisbart, welcome to Medical Monday. Let's start by just talking about the organization. What is Physicians for a National Health Program advocating for?
1: Sure. We advocate for a very simple thing. We should take Medicare, which has 52 years of success, fix the problems that we have with it, and give that to everybody. So basically, we're saying a very simple thing. Take Medicare and give that to everybody in the United States. If we do that,
5: it pretty much solves the problem of people who don't have insurance the uninsured now do people who have insurance through their employer uh, do they get to keep that or do they go under Medicare as well
1: well the thinking is that there would be no real need for those folks to keep their employer-based insurance the program that we would be offering through Medicare for everybody would have at a minimum the benefits that they have today through their employer but for most people they would find that the benefits are actually a lot better employer insurance means that you have to go to the employer chosen network of doctors and hospitals and generally only within your region you can't go out of your state you can't generally go very far for your health care you can't pick the doctor or hospital that you really want whereas if you have medicare or when you have medicare you can go to virtually any doctor or hospital anywhere in the united states and with medicare the way we're talking about doing it you would have no copays. you would have no deductibles you would have no risk of having to pay out of pocket for things beyond what you've paid to have access to the program. So given how robust and simple and ideal, actually, an improved Medicare for all would be, there's no real reason why someone would need to hold on to their employer-based insurance. I mean, it certainly sounds appealing
5: from the viewpoint of an employer because we hear lots of business people and business owners in particular complain really about the ever-increasing costs of health care premiums for their employees. We certainly hear employees or people you know us as patients complain about the increasing it seems like every year more on the copay side or higher deductibles uh so it seems to get more complex and more expensive all the time but i do want to ask because medicare for all i mean right now as it stands uh this may be in the weeds a little bit but medicare the kind that pays for outpatient care and many of our listeners are medicare beneficiaries so they're usually, if they don't have a supplemental policy, they do wind up paying twenty percent out of pocket usually. So, but
1: this legislation or this
5: plan would do away with that.
1: Well, that's exactly right. Medicare has two main flaws with it the way it's set up today, and this program would eliminate both of those flaws. So, one of the flaws is that Medicare has built into it pretty significant copays and deductibles that eighty twenty rule and such, and so most seniors who can afford to come up with either a supplement or an advantage program or something so that they don't have to deal with copays and deductibles as is currently in Medicare. So the first thing that we would be improving when we say improve Medicare for all is eliminate these copays and deductibles so that there wouldn't be a need to buy a supplement or go into an advantage program. Just eliminate those. And then the second thing that's that's really kind of a shortcoming in Medicare today is it doesn't cover some things that most Americans want it to cover. It doesn't cover dentistry. It doesn't cover eyeglasses. It doesn't cover hearing aids. There's a, actually a list of 15 or 20 things that Medicare today doesn't actually cover. So that's the second thing we would need to improve with Medicare is cover these things. I mean, who doesn't want someone with Medicare to be able to go to a dentist when they need to or, or to get eyeglasses or hearing aids? So when we say improved Medicare, we mean two things. The first is what you brought up, which is make it so that there isn't this 20% cost-sharing or these large deductibles and copays, get rid of that. And then the second thing is to fix these gaps in the benefits so that it does cover all the things that you really do need for your health care. So it certainly
5: sounds good to me. I mean, I'm a taxpayer. Uh, it sounds much simpler. It sounds much cleaner. And, I mean, I think yeah, it's safe to say probably that, like, Bernie Sanders, when he was he's in Congress as a senator and uh, an independent from Vermont is, is on board with this, I think, or when he was running for president. Was this the kind of plan he was proposing?
1: Yeah, it's very similar to the plan that Bernie Sanders proposed. And uh, he proposed that in 2017 in the Senate, and it now has 17 co-sponsors. So, yeah, it, it's very similar to what Bernie Sanders proposed but that right there i mean he definitely has
5: his devotees but i mean it this seems like a fairly out there idea in the sense that um i mean so is this is this a lot like canada i mean canada has a national program called the same thing medicare and canadians if you talk to them tend to i've talked to different canadians probably it breaks down where half are very proud of their system because it seems very fair and egalitarian but then other people complain about the canadian system because of queuing about waiting in line for elective procedures like say a hip replacement or knee replacement because the fact that there's just this one payer the government things that are not emergencies wind up you know sometimes taking a long time based on i guess supply and demand
1: so canadians are actually intensely proud of their healthcare program they would think it's insane to try to switch from a program like that to a program like we have so canadians do not want the american style of healthcare finance but they do have concerns about uh, waiting issues um there but they quickly point out that any waiting issues in Canada are not for life-threatening things they're not for leukemia or lymphoma or you know any any other major illness which i just actually heard that one major academic medical center is telling people if they can't afford to get their organ transplant, and here in the United States, that they should actually have a bake sale. They're actually recommending bake sales to raise money to get your life-saving organ transplant. So that sort of thing is, is impossible to hear about in Canada. The waiting list, the cues in Canada are not for anything that would actually be life-threatening like that, but they do have a waiting list for elective surgery, for hip replacements and, and things like that. But two things to think about. The first thing is that the waiting list for things in Canada is nowhere near as long as the general sense of it we have. The data shows that 80% of Canadians wait less than four months for elective surgery. Uh, And we don't have data like that in the United States because we just don't know. If you don't have insurance, you don't even get on the waiting lists. So the second thing to think about, of course, is that The waiting list problem that does exist in Canada, although it's not overwhelming, but it does exist, is because they spend literally half of what we spend per person on health care. So if we decided to cut our funding for health care by 50%, we'd have all kinds of problems no matter how we set things up. But no one's talking about doing that. So there's no reason to think that those problems of waiting lists in Canada would be the same as they have here. But bear in mind, when you... Here, the Canadians are concerned about a waiting list. They quickly say, "Yes, I had to wait longer than I wish I did, but I know that if I have something life-threatening and I have to get it taken care of, I don't have to wait at all." And very few people in the United States have that kind of peace of
5: mind. Well, and I should point out too. I mean, uh, we've experienced this a lot. Of, a lot of times is it just even sometimes just seeing your primary care doctor can take a couple of months. It's there's a real pinch in terms of getting uh, primary care appointments because it seems like so few. Uh, medical school graduates are going into primary care fields uh, like family medicine or, or general internal medicine um and similarly for specialists there can be a real bottleneck so sometimes you're waiting 2 or 3 months you know just for consultative appointments let alone for procedures one big criticism i always hear i guess you could say about a single payer program or a national health insurance plan is um it would stifle innovation it would stifle research and and that the profit motive in the american polyglot system where we have uh, pharmaceutical firms competing and device manufacturers competing for you know the market, as it were, is really a big driver. It certainly drives up costs. Everyone agrees with that. But we in America, we like our our profit stories, and uh, you know we do boast about the level of innovation that goes on here. How do how do you answer those critics?
1: Well, I think we should be very proud of the innovations that we've introduced in the United States in healthcare, and I think we need to be certain that whatever we set up continues to make us proud of that. And the good news is that this would actually improve that issue it wouldn't in any way hurt that issue i mean think about it that you know ninety percent of the research that these major breakthroughs are based upon are publicly funded now where, where does this research come from that creates these innovations it comes from grants research grants uh, primarily from the national institutes of health in other words our tax dollars are paying for this research But what we've done is we've allowed uh, those researchers then to privately patent the products of that research and to sell that patent to a drug manufacturer for a pretty rock-bottom price. So drug manufacturers now are able to purchase the research that we publicly funded for pennies on the dollar, and then they produce a product that they sell at any price they want back to the same people who funded the research in the first place. So the research funding would not really be at all compromised by this because it's a separate funding budget. It's the National Institutes of Health. But what winds up happening is that the research that's getting produced and that comes to market is often being limited to drugs that are designed to be the most profitable for the pharmaceutical manufacturers rather than drugs that are actually the most important for public health. So we just heard recently about one major manufacturer saying they're no longer going to do research on Alzheimer's disease or a variety of other things because they don't think that the end products down that line are going to be profitable enough. Well, that's exactly the kind of research that should be coming out of our country and we need to do more of. And so the funding for research like that has been and needs to continue to be even more so publicly funded so that research is aligned, research and innovation is aligned with what Americans need for healthcare rather than with what large drug manufacturers
5: need for their profits you're listening to Studio Tulsa, it's Medical Monday. I'm John Schumann. My guest today is Ed Weisbart. He's Chairman of the Missouri Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program and a Family Physician by Training. And, Ed, we we're talking about research and innovation under a national health program and pharmaceuticals in particular. And uh, one point in your biography that's pretty interesting is for a number of years you were the Chief Medical Officer at Express Scripts. Tell us what led you to that and then, you know, what is a pharmacy benefit manager? That's sort of a jargon-laden thing. What does that actually mean?
1: Sure. So. I went to work um, at this pharmacy benefit manager because I had, frankly, no faith or hope that we could fundamentally improve the healthcare system, and I thought, you know, I would continue to do what I could to make small tweaks and improvements. And, indeed, I think that's what ph- the pharmacy benefit management um, industry um, has done historically and does to a certain degree even even today. And what they do is they manage, they do just what the name sounds like. They manage the pharmacy benefit for anybody who's sort of, involved in paying for the pharmacy benefits. So if you have a, a drug benefit through your employer or through insurance, you get through some other method or through Medicare or any place. If you have a drug benefit, typically that benefit is not managed by the main company that does your health insurance. It's managed by an outsourced company for that first company. And that outsourced company is called the pharmacy benefit manager and Express Scripts um, is one of those. So Absent major change on the way we structure health care, I think those are actually in some ways really good companies that can add a lot of value. Their whole mission is, in theory, to lower the cost of prescription drugs. They negotiate for lower prices and they find ways to fill prescriptions more efficiently and they work on safety issues and they do they do in that sense a lot of good. But fundamentally it's the wrong model. Fundamentally the issue is that this fragmented healthcare system that we've set up in the country today is frankly corrosive to quality on a broad scale, and it keeps way too many people away from being able to get health care. And so I think we need a much better solution than having the 100 or 200 pharmacy benefit management companies and, I don't know, a 1,000 or so different um, health insurance companies. And it's our current healthcare care system is so complicated. It's so complicated, and complexity is fundamentally the opposite of quality. Complexity is fundamentally expensive and redundant and wasteful. And who wants to waste money just propping up this complex, redundant, not really public health oriented organization? Why not do what every other modern country has done and figure out a way to run this so that the entire country can have good access, affordable access to the best quality health care that the country can produce? And to be clear, we should be enormously proud of the healthcare that the United States of America produces for its citizens. When you get people into Medicare, when they finally reach that point, all sorts of things start to happen. Our life expectancy as we get older beyond Medicare, beyond Medicare entry, our life expectancy of seniors, the most senior among us, is actually the best in the world. We begin to soar above other countries. You know, Americans live two or three years shorter lives than they do in other countries. But once we turn 65, our ranking in terms of mortality rate and life expectancy quickly becomes the best in the world. The differences between blacks and whites begins to attenuate in terms of, of life expectancy. Once you put people onto uh, Medicare for dialysis, for example, blacks actually live longer than whites. So we have a terrific world-class health care delivery system with many of the world's best hospitals and doctors and pharmacies, we just don't let everybody into it. And uh, so organizations like pharmacy benefit managers, if we don't make a fundamental change and start to really get the whole system right, I think they do add some value. Um, But they're typically for-profit organizations on their own. And so their primary interest, of course, is on returning financial value to their shareholders. And that's not necessarily in conflict with public health, but it certainly doesn't drive public health. So we need to figure out how to just take a simple program that's got 52 years of success, Medicare, and make that available to everybody in the country and then build on that.
5: So, I mean, you are a pretty compelling spokesperson and advocate. I mean, you make it sound very logical, very reasonable. You point out we have 52 years of a track record with Medicare that has really good outcomes, and I know from reading that it has a pretty low overhead. I mean, even though people complain about it being from the government and government-mandated, there's sort of two ironies about that. One is it has far and away the lowest overhead of any insurance program. It's something in the 2 to 3% range, whereas commercial insurers are somewhere in the anywhere from 20 to 30% overhead. And then two is that... Even though people love to complain about Medicare, when you talk about cutting entitlements or cutting benefits, Medicare benefits, you know, the 65 and older crowd gets very angry and does not actually want Medicare benefits cut. And we see this again and again in in voting for representation and when uh, President George W. Bush tried to reform Medicare uh, or was it privatized Social Security that went down in a slag heap. So... One question that I have is, you know, politically, why is this so seemingly out of reach? Is it just the, the opposition from certainly the insurance companies don't want to, you know, essentially be put out of business? I think you, the hospitals are afraid it would seem that they're going to be on a, a government fee schedule and so can't use these charge masters to charge these exorbitant prices and contracts and, and you know, use these this siloed approach of lack of transparency that we read about. It seems to me increasingly in the media about these exorbitant hospital bills that people get stuck with, even when they have insurance sometimes or, or frequently. Um, what would it take to get a national health plan, you know, through Congress?
1: So, so there's there's two things to think about with this. The first is who is it that. Isn't is not supporting Medicare for all, and then the question is the second question is why do they have so much influence? So on on the first question, who who is this? There's really only three groups that don't that don't really want to have this solution in any large numbers. The first the first of course are the drug and device manufacturers, and it turns out that the drug manufacturers are a larger lobbying presence in Congress than the military-industrial complex and the oil industry. Combined, the drug manufacturers wow. are a larger lobbying presence in Congress than the military industrial complex and the oil industry combined. And that's on that's on monies spent on lobbying or actual fleets of lobbyists or both? Both. They spend four hundred and fifty thousand dollars per congressperson per year. Oh, that's a lot of money. They have two lobbyists per congressperson. So it's a huge. So, what, so one force, of voice of opposition are the drug and the device manufacturers. The second uh, voice of opposition, which is actually the second largest lobbying group in the con- in the country, um, is the insurance industry. Um, and and so it's pretty obvious why these two groups oppose it. The drug and device manufacturers understand that if we create Medicare for all program, we would. Absolutely, include letting uh, having a much more effective negotiation, they, they would suddenly find a much more effective negotiating partner at the table against them, and the and the insurance industry, if we proceed in the direction we're, we're talking about, um, frankly sees it as an existential threat. So of course they're they're opposed to it. Then there is a there is a third group um, who I just uh, consider ideologically really opposed to it for whatever reason they think it's just the wrong. Direction for the, for, the, for the country, those are that's actually a really small group of people. Most most Americans actually really do want to have this happen, and they think that it's a moral imperative, if anything, to make this happen. So, so that third group is real, and some of them are very consistent in how they say it, but. Frankly, that's a very small voice. The biggest, the, the, the real opposition is those first two groups. And then the, que- the second question then is why are they so effective at, at getting their, go- their goal across when we know most Americans disagree with them? And the answer to that is the same answer to why so many other important things that we need to improve in American society and our country are not moving forward. And that's because we frankly have allowed democracy to once again slip away from us. So democracy slipped away from us around the year 1900, when Teddy Roosevelt had to come in and do all the trust-busting that he did. Uh, It slipped away from us more than once. You know, it slipped away under Watergate, and then we created these new rules and regulations thanks to Richard Nixon's egregious behavior. And we we periodically find that democracy doesn't run on autopilot, but that democracy requires the American people to stand up and demand that we actually run it like a democracy. And so I think healthcare is telling us that we are once again at one of those crossroads. We are once again at the point where democracy has slipped away um, and our legislators have to spend so much time and their own resources raising funds to just be able to run for office again that they're not as effective at legislating as they once were. We have turned in the last 30 or 40 years our legislature into a group of people who are very good at fundraising and not as good at actually legislating on behalf of the american people and we need to recapture that we need to deal with the way campaigns are financed and and through that that would then of course erase a lot of the opportunity for these lobbyists to subvert the democratic process so so these things have to happen hand in hand the the nice thing about this issue is that Healthcare is a pocketbook issue, it's a kitchen table issue, it's a life and death issue, and it's gotten to the point where it's really an important life or death issue for a lot of people. And so as we help people see the connection between the problems with the way healthcare is organized today, how simple of a solution we have, laying right hiding in plain sight Medicare for crying out loud, what a nice simple solution is just hiding in plain sight and that the only barrier to that is that we have sadly lost some of our grasp on democracy well let's use the health care crisis to drive back our democracy into what it needs to be
5: you're listening to studio tulsa it's medical monday i'm john schumann my guest today is ed weisbart chair of the missouri chapter of physicians for a national health program and family physician and ed you alluded to two major groups that oppose a national health program one being the pharmaceutical industry and two being the health insurance industry again probably no surprise you mentioned that uh the health insurance industry sees this idea as an existential threat. I want to include in that our profession, doctors um, who sort of famously went, is um, you know, under the AMA opposed really the formation of Medicare in the, in the 1960s and uh, you know gave it the moniker socialized medicine. And so there's really for a long time been a rhetorical animosity, I guess you could say, toward the idea of government-funded uh, health program that would cover everybody regardless of socioeconomic class, employment status, race, gender, et cetera. But I, I think that that's changed. I mean, you present in some of your writing and op-eds uh, survey data that shows many more physicians are actually in favor of, of a uh, single payer or a national health program.
1: Yeah, we need we not to confuse the voice of the organizations who claim to represent physicians with what physicians actually think. So it's true that, that um, groups like the American Medical Association have viewed themselves as being sort of the guild protectors and, and have not been uh, um, very helpful at advancing important social policy changes. And perhaps related to that, it's hard to say exactly, but Ten years ago, only 40% of physicians actually supported Medicare for all. So that was that. That was a pretty good number. Ten years ago, you could say it positively. 40% of physicians were already on board with that. But that's less than half. Ten years. Ten. Ten years ago, few. It was a minority position for physicians to support this. The most recent data from 2017. I've not seen 2018 data yet. 2017 shows that that has entirely reversed, so that now 60% of physicians in the United States want this solution.
0: For more information, go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. Have a safe, healthy new year.